We all remember Samuel Taylor Coleridge's Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. I'm going to adapt that. And speaking in my own voice, there was an ancient professor who stoppeth one of three. By thy long gray beard and glittering eye, now wherefore stopst thou me? And I stopped. Ann Neal and John Wenger and later on Alan Coors will join us by phone to talk about what's happened to the American University, which I have labored for many, many years, starting at Yale, going on for two strange years at Ohio State University, then Dartmouth, and then for a long term at the University of Chicago. And over those many years, I testify that I've seen uh, higher education significantly lowered. And I think it's been lowered partly by what we no longer teach, but should be teaching, and partly by a kind of, uh, a kind of a climate of slight terror, or at least of intimidation, with regard to uttering the proper liberal banalities and avoiding honest and free expression of other thoughts if you happen to have them. Anne Neal, I see you smiling. Uh, let me first make clear who Anne Neal and John Wenger are. Anne Neal is the president of the American Council of Trustees and Alumni, a very important organization who, which was organized some years ago to try to rectify what's gone wrong with American higher education. And John Wenger is the vice president of the Illinois chapter of the National Association of Scholars, another organization which is dedicated to the same. Why are you smiling, Anne, as I say that? I appreciated your reference to Coleridge because I'm very fearful that uh, most students going to college these days may not have read that poem and may it, not yeah. be familiar with Coleridge. Uh, regrettably, our studies, the, the hollow core, have shown that the strong, rigorous core curriculum that one used to be able to count on that would introduce students to the best that had been done and said is just really no longer in place. Uh, what we've found is that instead of exposure to broad areas of knowledge like math, science, literature, uh, economics, instead, what our colleges and universities have done is introduced distribution requirements. And as a consequence, students can take from hundreds and hundreds of courses and come away often with a very patchy education with large gaps. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned Coleridge. It, it, I think it's very interesting to look at Shakespeare studies, which is something that uh, ACTA has long been interested in. Uh, we've just been reviewing what is required of English majors uh, in the Big Ten, Big 12, Ivy League. And there's only one Ivy League college today that requires its English majors to study Shakespeare, and that is Harvard. And I think that's just emblematic of what we're finding in so many places, basically the disintegration of a strong curriculum. And another problem that we're fighting is a kind of intrusion into academic life of certain standards of, to use a, an overused phrase, political correctness. You, uh, John Wenger, have been very much involved in that. And let's make clear who you are exactly. Uh, not only are you the vice president of the Illinois chapter of NAS, the National Association of Scholars, but you're a former professor of mathematics at the Harold Washington College here in Chicago. That's right. And you were the grievance chair for the City Colleges of Chicago Teachers Union for, for many years. And you, are, and you are as well the editor until quite recently of Science Insights, a publication, uh, a, a web publication put out by the National Association of Scholars in which what you were reporting on essentially was the intrusion of political correctness standards not only into the redesign of the curriculum but into the actual doing or, or representation of science itself. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and from both the left and the right. 
Uh, it's uh, one, one of the things that has started to get reported more and more, for example, is uh, the all, all administrations do this, to be fair. I don't want to be partisan, but apparently uh, President Bush has really kicked this up a notch. And uh, there are many scientists who are supposed to be essentially value neutral. We're talking about the hard sciences here. Uh, they, they are, they're called upon simply to give their expertise. Is this drug safe, for example? And they have been subjected to uh, political litmus tests. They've been asked if they've voted for the president and so on. And if they say that they haven't, they never hear from anyone again. Uh, it's outrageous. They're asked if they voted for the president. You mean President Bush? Yes. And if they haven't, what happens? Then, then they, nobody gets back to them. These are scholars. They don't get funding, is that what you mean? Uh, no, no, it's that they, they, they are, their approach to be on various scientific panels for the government. Oh, I see. And So uh, here we are. Then good, I'm glad you said that because that establishes that we're not just criticizing American education, higher education, from the point of view of uh, conservatives complaining about liberal intrusions. It works both ways. Absolutely, I think that's right. But uh, it is fair to say as we look out in the university landscape that diversity is a big and important word, but it's often diversity of backgrounds rather than diversity of ideas. And I think it's deeply troubling as we look at uh, what we have typically called the marketplace of ideas, and we find instead uh, an atmosphere that more often is interested in inducing correct opinion rather than liberating the mind. I couldn't agree more with that, and I can give you an example. In, in, in my own school, uh, I'm a Democrat myself. We had one Republican uh, who has unfortunately died, uh, and he was a fabulous teacher. Everyone liked him, and uh, he gave balance to the entire department. Now that he's gone, I don't, I could be wrong about this. I've been gone for a few years, but I don't believe there's a single Republican or conservative in the entire social science department, and I well, think that's terrible. Well, we've had many studies in recent years demonstrating that in the social sciences and the humanities, uh, if you want to define people uh, by that simple binary discrimination of Republican versus Democrat, that you get ratios of 18 to 1 of Democrats to Republicans in, say, political science or sociology. And essentially the same, uh, uh, the same ratios, maybe it's only 12 to 1 in departments like mine of psychology. But when you go to the English department, again, it's 20 to 1 and so on. Uh, why is that? Why is it you're such a congregation of people of leftist orientation, not merely Democrats, but Democrats, socialists, and God knows what, Marxists, in the American social sciences and humanities. Well, it is indeed a question of a politically monolithic faculty. I mean, as you indicated, there are just numerous studies that show this imbalance. Yeah. And I think there are numerous uh, speculation as to why it's this way. And of course, once they're in there, they tend to hire in their own kind. Don't well, they? that's absolutely the case, and I think there are examples. Uh, Rob Nadelson comes to mind, an eminent constitutional scholar in Montana who had published more than anyone in his department, and they found no reason to hire him to teach constitutional law, and he sued. Uh, hmm. And uh, they found that, uh, and he claimed that it was political discrimination against him. Ultimately, the university essentially settled. He was brought back in. He did teach constitutional law, but it certainly raised serious concerns as to whether or not academic merit, academic quality was the key, or whether or not it was a political litmus test. There are a thousand cases 
basis you could, you could come up with. And indeed, FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, is very much involved in protecting those who are fired or, uh, or discriminated against in terms of faculty privileges because they are of conservative orientation. They're terrific. Uh, they are indeed, and I'm very proud to be on their board of advisors, which I have been for many years. But let me just give you one case. I'm sure that, Anne, you know this one, and probably John does as well. It goes back to my old and my own alma mater, Brooklyn College, that young historian named Johnson. Mm -hmm. Are you aware of that case? Absolutely. Can you review the detail of it? Casey Johnson is a magnificent historian at Brooklyn College, and he'd been published by Oxford, by Harvard, and he came up for tenure. He's the most published young member of that department. Absolutely, and he came up for tenure, and remarkably, the word collegiality was raised, and they found reasons that he was not collegial enough, and therefore were going to deny him tenure, even though he had published more successfully, had received more positive reviews from his students than virtually anyone in the department. Now, KC is an outstanding and courageous young professor, and so yeah. he was not going to take it lying down. He came to the American Council of Trustees and Alumni, uh, raised some concerns about what was being done to him. Uh, the chancellor was brought in, and he basically said that he was being treated unfairly because of his political viewpoint. Now, I think it's interesting. As By the way, what was his political viewpoint? Well, it, it, he advises us that he actually is a Democrat and a card-carrying Hillary supporter. But, uh -huh. of course, in today's skewed academy, uh, he has often been <laughs> referred to as a Republican or a conservative by his colleagues. And, in fact, what was happening is he believes in constitutional history, he believes in diplomatic history, and these areas have often been disfavored by his colleagues in the history department. He had also dared to suggest that a panel that Brooklyn had after 9-11, uh, which was talking about military uh, intervention, did not have a representative from Israel, did not have uh, a wide viewpoint uh, to be provided to the students. And he dared to suggest that that was inadequate. And so he paid royally by trying to keep Brooklyn on its, uh, on its mission of competing perspectives and introducing students to a variety of What of he ran into, I would suggest, was the Marxist phalanx, phalanx, which is to be found in many, many social science and humanities departments in many universities and colleges in this country. The fact is Marxism died in Europe. Uh, its great uh, expression in terms of political representation was, of course, the Soviet Union and the various satellite Soviet states, all of which were communist in orientation and which were rationalized by Marxist philosophers of various types. And uh, by now, the world has learned that Marxism as a way of analyzing how the world works and that the kind of political system it enjoins or it encourages, uh, all of that is ruinous. Not merely ruinous in terms of economic disrepair and disorganization, but in that it tends to lead to the killing of millions of people, which isn't really <laughs> a very uh, right. pleasant thing to do. Um, but so Marxism has gone from Europe. It's gone from even European intellectual life, basically, where it flourishes strangely, is in the American universities. How does one account for that? Well, I was going to raise a question on that, which is, uh, I can understand why it flourishes because of what we said before, like attracts like. What I can't understand, I, and I am somebody who spent my, my life, 16 years and, and more actually, fighting administrations and a board of trustees 
why don't the administrations back these people up? Why don't the boards of trustees tell a department you can't get away with this kind of stuff? I, I don't understand that. It's an excellent question. One might even ask, why doesn't that... Uh, that question applies not merely in the city colleges of Chicago, it's but it applies in some of the uh, great high-prestige institutions of this country, including, presently, I would say, Harvard University, where the board should have backed the embattled president, Larry Summers. You bet. But in fact, they absolutely violated him in every way, and they've gone on to, uh, pro to compound their sin by appointing, as the new president of Harvard, a woman who represents all that Larry Summers was worried about. Um, I'm, I'm deeply invested and involved in this and talking too much, and the people in the booth are waving at me because we're five minutes late for the commercials. We'll be directly back to our survey of what's gone wrong in American university life after these words. We're talking about trouble in the American university, uh, modes or aspects of the decline. The American university is still a great institution, particularly in the sciences and in some of the professional schools, but in the arts and social sciences uh, and in the, under, the undergraduate curriculum, things have gone rather wrong, lots of us think, lots of us who are veterans of American academic life, though others, of course, would disagree. My guests tonight, uh, the two of them at the moment and a third coming up a little later by telephone, uh, would agree with me in that judgment. They are John Winger, Vice President of the Illinois Chapter of the National Association of Scholars, an organization, the NAS, which is very much concerned with the decline and the disorder in American higher education. And Anne Neal, President of the American Council of Trustees and Alumni. That's an organization that was founded some years ago. And indeed, Lynn Cheney, the uh, the wife of the Vice President of the United States, was one of the original, she was the founder, was she not? She was one of the original founders. Uh, Joe Lieberman was also yeah. at the launch of the organization. We're very pleased to say we're a bipartisan <coughs> national nonprofit focused on academic freedom, academic excellence, and accountability. And quite frankly, as we've already discussed, we believe these issues of academic integrity and quality are not partisan issues. They're not Democrat issues. They're not Republican issues. They're really issues about holding our colleges and universities to their mission of advancing the truth and of abiding by professional standards. Now, lately, both your organization, uh, ACTA, American Council of Trustees and Alumni, and uh, the organization that John is involved in, and I am involved in it as well, the National Association of Scholars, have both been examining changes in the curriculum of particularly undergraduate education and the things that are they're now leaving out, which... Uh, a more or less conventional approach to education would suggest are essential to education. Yes, it's really true, and I think we can go back to the study by the American Association of Colleges and Universities some years ago, where they documented that the curriculum really is pretty much anything goes. I mean, in the past, you could pretty much rely on college curricula to introduce students to lab sciences, math, foreign languages, literature, composition. Uh, but no longer is that the case. And it's a little bit deceptive because if mom and dad t goes and takes a look at the college catalog, 
uh, most colleges will state in their books that they will give students a broad general education and exposure to the best that has been done and said. And it's not until you read the fine print that you discover that students can graduate without ever having a literature survey, without ever having a math survey, without ever having an economics course, without ever having a lab science. And that's what we discovered in our uh, report, The Hollow Core. I think it's just remarkable that only 38% of the schools we surveyed, which were the Big Ten, Big 12, and Ivy League, have math. Uh, none of them require economics of their graduates. 38% of these top-notch colleges do not require any science. Only 14% of these uh, colleges had American government or history. So is it any wonder that we are producing uh, generations of students who really have had a very patchy education. What are they getting instead? Well, that's the other story. Yes. It's, it's interesting. That's where the leftist intrusion becomes very visible. Because no, what we've seen is uh, instead of having broad survey courses, we're now finding lots of rather narrow, often trendy courses. For instance, the history of comic book art would meet your requirements at Indiana University. I think this is uh, particularly sad, if not tragic, that at Duke, in order to meet uh, your general education requirement, you can take campus culture and drinking. Oh. Now, you don't need to take Shakespeare. You don't need to take a literature survey. What but do they do take... in that course? Campus <laughs> <laughs> I, dare, do they, I don't do dare. Do they have a lab in drinking itself? Do they? And University of Minnesota, again, one of the um, requirements can be met by taking rock music from 1970 to the present. Mm -hmm. And while one would not dispute that perhaps these courses have value, uh, given the fact that students are only there four to five years, they have limited opportunity to uh, take these classes, isn't it a pity that our colleges and universities have abdicated their responsibility to introduce students? Going to locally, classes. and not to the University of Chicago or to Northwestern, but to the city colleges of Chicago, do you, John, see something comparable in at the city college level? Uh, not that way. As a matter of fact, we've, got, we've tightened up things somewhat. Uh, we've started requiring mathematics, for, some, uh, for example, something that, uh, while I respect that, I actually don't agree with it. Being a math teacher, I just run into too many people who are math-phobic mm. and can't handle it. Uh, and unless you're going into something that requires it, you can do quite well in life without math. Uh, I'm not talking about arithmetic, of course. I'm talking about uh, higher math, but still. Uh, however, I have run into it. I remember a woman who, who had graduated from the University of Michigan, which happens to be my undergraduate alma mater, uh, English major. And so I, so I said, oh, and I started quoting, you know, to be or not to be. And then my office mate, also a mathematician, he quoted Shakespeare, and then I quoted more Shakespeare, back and forth. And she looked at us with a blank stare. And with all the famous quotes that we went, ran through, she had no idea whom we were quoting. She had what some have called an unfurnished mind. Yeah. I'm very fond of the work of E.A. Hirsch at the University of Virginia, who developed the concept of cultural literacy. He says you can't really f function in this world unless you've got the equipment just in terms of information, uh, because then you don't understand what's being said and what's being uh, offered to you. Uh, you can't, everything puzzles you. And uh, I find, and I fear that this is a generalizable truth, that American undergraduates these days 
come out after four years of college with a not with fully furnished minds. And I offer as testimony my own cultural literacy quiz, which I was giving for many years at the University of Chicago. Usually in the course uh, that I uh, of mine that was a lecture course and I had the largest number of students, the social psychology course, introductory social psychology. And in the last session of the course, where we usually have 50 to 70 students, I would give them a little cultural literacy quiz. Regular listeners have heard me carry on about this before, but it's worth mentioning again. This is the University of Chicago, one of America's 10 top universities by almost any measure and any ranking. And my cultural literacy quiz was a number of very basic questions. One of them was, what were the years of the American Civil War? Uh, not one out of 10 was able to give me the proper decade, let alone the proper dates, 1861 to 1865, someplace that as far back as the revolutionary times and as far forward as the early portion of the, uh, of the 20th century. Uh, I asked as well, quite commonly, who was the French king who was executed uh, in the French Revolution? Not one out of 10, not one out of 50 could come up with Louis XVI. They just have never had a course which taught them this very important portion of American, rather of Western history. Um, I've, been, I've been told that our students don't know about the Vietnam War. They don't. Our students know virtually nothing in history. They know very little in literature. They've read virtually no, the literature courses they take in many places uh, barely acquaint them with Samuel Taylor Coleridge. They barely acquaint them with Shakespeare, as you say, and with anybody in between. One cannot understand and cannot imagine why those who guard the precincts of high culture, whether in the English department or in philosophy or in history, would not have insisted on maintaining basic requirements with regard to simply the acquisition of elementary knowledge of the sort that, uh, that, uh, that makes possible the quality of cultural literacy that you need to function in this world. Well, I think that's absolutely right. The American Council of Trustees and Alumni did a study called Losing America's Memory, and we uh -huh. basically went to the top colleges, according to U.S. News and World Report, to see what students uh, did know or did not know, and we found exactly what you found at the University of Chicago, that the elite graduates did not yeah. know that Madison was the father of the Constitution. Yeah. They were not aware yeah. of the separation of powers, uh, but they did know Snoop Doggy Dogg. There they did know about the <laughs> Simpsons, and since uh, we're here in Chicago, I think it's it's important to look at the McCormick Tribune Freedom Museum, which did a survey. And again, they discovered American adults could more readily identify Simpson cartoon characters than freedoms granted in the First Amendment. There you and are. I think this is of deep concern for all of us who live in a liberal democracy. I only gave you two of the ten items that I gave. I used to give them my cultural literacy quiz. Another, which I've always always been very fond of, and again, regular listeners are sick of this example, but I must give it. Uh, I asked them, uh, who wrote the opera, who's the composer of the opera Tosca? <coughs> Not one out of 50 could come up with Puccini. But the one great answer came from one young man who filled in, Tosca was obviously written by Toscanini. <laughs> Well, at least that shows he knew something. He was sort of smart in his own way. We are due for an update on the news. We go to the newsroom, and we are joined now by an old friend and colleague, Alan Kors, who is professor of history at the University of Pennsylvania. Good evening, Alan. Good evening, Milton.
Well, it's wonderful to be with you again. It's a great pleasure. And you know, of course, we have Ann Neal and John Winger here. Uh, two marvelous people. Hi, Alan. <laughs> Hello. Hi. Uh, but I should instantly make clear that apart from your credential as professor of history at uh, University of Pennsylvania, you are, of course, the co-founder of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, FIRE, the acronym, an organization that I am proud to serve as a member of the advisory board and um, very interested always in the work that you do. We've been talking essentially about the, um, the collapse of the collegiate curriculum, about uh, the absence of a full and significant commitment to the great canonical core of Western uh, learning and Western civilization in the universities. But there's another great problem related thereunto, and that's the problem of the intrusion of political correctness into university life in a way that, in fact, reduces the freedom both of faculty and of students. And that's and been your basic concern. Well, that, that certainly has been one of my basic concerns, though the two problems are absolutely um, interrelated. They are indeed. Uh, because it's precisely having political litmus tests and political rather than educational goals in the curriculum, in the classroom, in offices of student life, uh, that have led to the degradation of our university. But now let me invite you to make the case. Political litmus tests intruding into American education and corrupting it. Well, what are some, uh, are, do you have data in terms of sheer quantitative estimates or quantitative well, uh, numbers or in terms of particular outrageous incidents? Yeah, in, t in terms of offices of student life, um, I just advise anyone to go to the FIRE website, thefire.org, um, and there are hundreds of cases, and we have the codes of virtually every university The, spe up. the speech um, codes, so-called. The, the speech codes, the behavioral codes. Uh, uh, for example, uh, right now, right as we speak at Michigan State University, they have an active student accountability and community program that if students say or hold cer say certain things or hold certain attitudes indicative of, quote, from the policy, power and control tactics, or, quote, male white privilege, close quote, those students must attend a seminar at their own expense in order to have their attitudes reformed. This 2007 under... Um, a state university bound in theory by the Constitution of the United States. And what sorts of events or what sorts of utterances get classified as, uh, as violating the rule? Um, the policy refers to rude statements that indicate, quote, male white privilege. Uh, it's, it's Orwellian and breathtaking. Um, but the student life part of the coin. There is no one who can, who has lived in universities, and, and I've been at the University of Pennsylvania since 1968, who has not seen in terms of hiring, curriculum, and fellowships that same politicization that you also see uh, in student life. I teach above all primary sources, 17th, 18th century uh, I teach a seminar on the history of classical liberal thought, uh, and my students will tell me this is the first time I've ever read Voltaire. Uh, it's the first time I've ever read Locke. It's the first time I've ever read Mill. 
it's the first time they've ever heard of Friedrich Hayek, the first time they've ever heard of Milton Friedman. Uh, what you have, hmm. uh, as your two guests know well, uh, as well as I, is uh, an, an ideological curriculum um, that both teaches a significant amount of drivel. That's one cost, but then the opportunity cost, um, students are not exposed um, to the great debates that constitute the history of Western thought um, and American thought that would give them um, a real grounding um, in the rigorous positions that people have argued and debated. Then there are the sheer crazed indignities that sometimes occur. There are, there are a hundred cases or, or a thousand cases from the fire files. One of my favorites goes back a few years at Tufts University in a suburb of Boston where a, um, an organization of, um, uh, of evangelical Christian students, uh -huh. undergraduates, uh, had, were recognized as a regular student group. They got the few dollars that one gets from the student funds or whatever. But uh, they had to elect, it was up uh, the, uh, for election of their new um, officers. And a fellow showed up who was an atheist and who had contempt for Christianity. Uh, well, actually, it was an evangelical Christian woman who said she was a lesbian. Oh, was that it? Yes, and she she believed that Scripture um, was tolerant of homosexuality. And the group said, well, you can be a member, and we love arguing with you, but you can't be an officer. We are committed to a certain scriptural view, whereupon Tufts expelled the group from campus. Exactly. Um, and it took our saying to the president of Tufts, does that mean that if we can get um, a majority of students at the next meeting um, of the gay, bisexual, lesbian, transgender student association um, to vote that homosexuality is an abomination unto the Lord, <laughs> that such a person could be president. And the president of Tufts said, why no, people have a right to freedom of association. And we said, exactly. Uh -huh. And he said, now I understand. Uh, that's quite remarkable, but uh, when people have power that has not been challenged in decades, um, it goes to their head. Why do college administrators, presidents, and deans and dinglets so regularly lean in the direction of uh, favoring leftist causes and leftist organizations and getting tough and restrictive and rejecting of anything that has a conservative stamp to it? Well, one, I do believe that there is a predilection for liberal positions among administrators to begin with, though, though that's always been the case. So it doesn't explain uh, the current circumstance. For me, it is that there are vetoes that are given over administrative positions to various ideological and identity politics groups. And if you wish your career to exceed, you cannot be perceived as not supportive, let alone as hostile, um, by such groups. Uh, so if, if, if the aide to a university president tells him, boy, you have really annoyed the conservative Lutherans on campus, there is no free zone of fear that goes down that administrator's back. But say that you've 
um, you've really ticked off the militant black student faculty administrative alliance, and the person knows um, there's no next move up and no next job. Uh, the way I think of it at universities is that sexuality, gay or straight, trumps neutrality, um, that race trumps sexuality, that what they call gender, sex, um, trumps race and careerism trumps everything. To what degree are the problems we're talking about tonight, a debased curriculum and uh, the intrusion of standards of leftist political correctness kind of corrupting uh, open and honest discourse in the classroom or beyond but in university life, to what degree are these problems endemic in American higher education? Or to what degree are they sort of special and exceptional and, uh, and uh, unusual? Oh, no, I think they are systemic, uh, that they represent almost all of the flagship uh, universities and state universities, um, and that there are a handful of eccentric exceptions um, to that general rule. Our universities have tried to clone each other. Uh, it's, it's very sad how little diversity there is, how, how little reality of choice people have. And let me let me collect opinions on that from our other two uh, participants tonight. And Anne I, Neal. I think we're looking at really the consequences of postmodernism in the academy, How so? where we really have, uh, I think, turned away from the concept of the disinterested search for truth. I know at the University of California now, their academic freedom statement has been modified to eliminate the prohibition against. Uh, uh, indoctrination and the difference between interested and disinterested scholarship has been eliminated. Uh, we've seen. You say this relates to postmodernism. You mean from postmodernism the uh, assertion or at least the strong intimation that there is no final truth? Yes, I think that's right. I think that's very much uh, the mindset of many of the faculty that we now see on our college campuses. Uh, there is a prism of race, class, and gender that's brought to every subject. Uh, that scholarship and teaching now are political and that uh, students should be molded as change agents. I think we've seen that since the late 60s, and clearly uh, that is very much uh, indigenous in the, in the reigning uh, faculty on college campuses today. I should say, though, I mean, the, the noise has always been from within. Uh, administrators would listen because the loudest wheel were the faculty, and I think that's why the American Council of Trustees and Alumni Fire and other groups exist to provide a counter veiling voice uh, from citizens, parents, taxpayers who were concerned that colleges and universities have lost their way. I uh, so, uh, want to collect the opinion of John Wenger as well. How common are these problems? Um, <clears throat> because I teach in, a, in what used to be called a junior college, there's a piece of political correctness, mm -hmm. uh, now they're called community colleges, um, the, the problems aren't as great. We have a blue-collar uh, clientele, and they actually want to learn something. They, they, they're interested in advancing in their jobs and so forth, and the result is that you don't get this sort of hyper, uh, I don't know how to describe well, it. Well, and, and I'll even disagree with you there, because uh, we conducted a national survey of the top 50 colleges, the 
University of Connecticut Center for Survey Research and Analysis went to the students to ask them what was the atmosphere in the classroom. 49% of the students said that professors were frequently interjecting political material that had nothing to do with the subject. Recently, we were in Missouri where the legislature is considering a bill that would require the boards of trustees to report on the concrete steps they're taking to advance intellectual diversity because, quite frankly, this concern has risen to the point now that legislators are concerned, parents are concerned, and we conducted a survey in the state of Missouri, Missouri State, University of Missouri, Columbia, and we found equally the problem that students were feeling pressure in the classroom. 51% said if they didn't agree with their professors, they were fearful they would get a bad grade. Uh, nearly 60% said that professors were bringing politics into the classroom, and these were students who were in math and science and professional subjects. They were not even in the value-laden humanities where you would expect to hear more about politics. So I think it's a very pervasive problem, not only in the elites, but in other schools where faculty come from the elites. I think, right, that, I think that's exactly, exactly right. And being something of a lightning rod on my own campus, the number of students who come to me and show uh, extraordinary comments in the margins of their papers by, by professors uh, with absolutely closed mind, or from my view, clear grading down um, because of ideological disagreement. And Anne's point about postmodernism and the abandonment of a disinterested search for truth uh, is very important here. When I was a student in the 60s, I had many a Marxist and Marxizing professor, um, but they believed in a disinterested search for truth. I recall taking a course on 20th century European history, a Marxist professor, when he gave back the midterms, he said he was scandalized that people just told him what they thought he wanted to hear. Um, and he assigned for our final exam, Changed My Intellectual Life, uh, a book he said he most disagreed with. Uh, and he wanted us not to critique it, but to recreate its arguments with intellectual empathy. The book was Friedrich Hayek's The Road to Serfdom. I cannot imagine hmm. colleagues or a significant number of professors engaging in that kind of teaching now. I think that's right, and I think, regrettably, the PC orthodoxy that we see on so many campuses means that contrary opinion is actually uh, not engaged and debated, but in fact evaded and suppressed. And we talked about Larry Summers earlier. Certainly, his comments about the intrinsic aptitude of women, a perfectly permissible comment, but again, it was one of these areas you're not supposed to we, talk about. We talked about that off the air before we started the program. What do you make, Alan, of... Uh, the uh, the firing of Larry Summers, the terrible ordeal that he was put through, and to be sure, the way in which he betrayed himself by trying to uh, uh, to uh, ingratiate with those who were angered at him. Well, uh, he did. And then yeah. the yeah. the recent appointment of of, of uh, Ms. Faust as the new president of Harvard. Right. Well, it is wonderful to have a Dr. Faust as <laughs> 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 the president of the university. Uh, she, she was my colleague at the University of Pennsylvania for... for yes, she came from your place. I remember yeah, that. So, yeah, so uh, I, 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 should, I should say nothing. Uh, <laughs> but uh, in, terms, in terms of Larry Summers, we will never know what would have happened and what might have been energized um, if he had defended himself. 
justice will never know what would have happened. Instead of trying to placate them, ultimately offering $50 million for to restore feminist truth at the at Harvard, and the administrator of all of that was well, this self-same right. Dr. Faust. If he had said, is this a university in which we may question or is it not, um, I think there would have been a remarkable rallying to him and a tremendous embarrassment for Harvard if it had moved now, against him. Now, you know, for some but of our he listeners... Didn't fight, he didn't fight for himself, and most faculty won't for, fight for themselves. Some of our listeners may be confused by this, so I must ask the three of you to make the case clear. What was it, what was the great excess or the great crime of, of Larry Summers? Summers was invited to be provocative. He was invited explicitly by yes. the organizer to be provocative um, at a session on why women seemed underrepresented at the highest levels um, and of, of the sciences. Um, and Summers said, well, um, it could be this or that environmental factor. Um, it could be this or that encouragement. Or there could be inherent intrinsic differences between the minds of men and women. The hard, the hard wiring of the cognitive system yes, of men and women. That statement, that statement was deemed beyond the pale. And if that statement is beyond the pale, then universities have simply signed a... Faustian compact. Exactly. <laughs> I knew you were going to do that, Alan. <laughs> we will not debate the great issues, and we will not raise provocative questions on a college campus. I fear I must call a halt. I'm too involved in this, and so I'm uh, derelict in my duties. We are overdue for some commercials. Uh, Alan, you can hang in there for a while? Absolutely. Please do. We'll take care of these messages, and uh, then a newscast, and then we shall return. And we return to Alan Kors. John Wenger and Ann Neal, all of whom I'm sure agree with me that a great deal has gone wrong in American higher education in recent years, but all of whom, or each of whom, is involved with an organization which is attempting to rectify and, uh, and improve uh, the quality of American higher education during these times of duress and uh, possibly even degeneration. It occurs to me that it would be a very good contribution right now for me to ask each of you to talk about the particular organization that you represent, uh, what uh, led to the founding of each of those organizations, they're all fairly new, and what they are committed to by way of their continued programmatic efforts. And let me turn first to John Wenger in that regard to talk about the National Association of Scholars. Well, the National Association of Scholars, I think, was the parent organization to both of the other two organizations. Uh, and it was uh, it was formed generally because of all of the things that you've said. I, I don't know if I uh, can do anything other than repeat them. The the the, the standards crashing to the floor, uh, political correctness, and so on. In fact, I would say that both the fire and ACTA uh, have picked up on various aspects of what we do, and 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 the NAS is a kind of a in in that sense an umbrella organization or a generalist trying to uh, do whatever we can for all of these problems. And as for the uh, for FIRE, Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, Alan Kors, it really began with a book that you and Harvey Silverglade did. Well, yes, and I, I should quickly state that while I admire the NAS uh, infinitely, um, FIRE did not originate out of the NAS. That, that was uh, in, in independent work by, by several of us. Uh, FIRE 
uh, emerged out of a book I had co-authored with Harvey Silverblade, a civil libertarian attorney in Massachusetts, called The Shadow University, The Betrayal of Liberty on America's Campus. A book that we discussed with the two of you on well, this program right. and a book uh, during the year it appeared, yes. A book that arose when uh, we saw how a case that I had taken public at Penn, uh, the Water Buffalo case, yes. Um, had allowed people to understand in ways they hadn't understood before just what was happening on American campuses. When we wrote The Shadow University, uh, we started to get quite literally 20 letters, packages, emails, phone calls a month each um, asking for our help. Um, and help in what? Help uh, in what kind? Help of in defending them against the double standards and arbitrary injustices of political correctness, for things they said, for things they taught, even for things that they believed, um, and the total lack of due process in these politicized kangaroo courts. University administrations landing upon students and/or faculty and, and punishing them for their own thought. So rather than having Harvey and I, who each had jobs and families, uh, doing this uh, uh, till till 4 a.m. in the morning, though it often worked out that way anyway, uh, we decided let's raise some funds, let's hire some staff, um, and let's organize these efforts. And we have focused on uh, the area of student life, free speech for faculty and students, uh, the administration of justice on campus and double standards or their absence. And your basic method was to send letters to the presidents of uh, of institutions that well, were and, in violation. And to get things into the media, of which course. turns out to be the most powerful uh, phenomenon of all. We took as our motto. Pu public shaming is really um, the Louis Brand, that Justice Louis Brandeis' yeah. dictum that sunlight is the best disinfectant. Yeah. Uh, and it's proven true. And there are hundreds of such cases. Give just one briefly to illustrate the nature of the method. Oh, uh, a typical one was uh, a poet at the University of Alaska um, had written an extraordinary moving poem um, on uh, the abuse of women and sexual abuse in Native Alaskan culture called Indian Girls. Um, and for a poem, the university opened an investigation of her um, for having created a hostile environment um, for Native Americans on Alaskan campuses. Um, and after several attempts to do this privately, we threatened to take it public um, if the uh, chancellor of the university, president of the university system, um, did not accept that investigation itself of what is constitutionally protected or protected by academic freedom chills the climate for all. Um, and uh, conveniently, after a major editorial in the Wall Street Journal, uh, they all saw the light. It's wonderful work that you do, and I'm very pleased to be on the advisory board of the organization. Uh, I was honored to have you. Uh, and let me turn to Ann Neal then, and ACTA, uh, the American Council of Trustees and Alumni. Uh, much of what the organization is about is given in its very name. 
uh, trustees and alumni are very powerful people if they know how to use their power. Well, absolutely, and I think the conventional wisdom before our founding was that alumni and trustees should remain outside the ivory tower, and it was our conviction that, in fact, uh, universities are privileged with independence and public support uh, because they serve society, and that they very much uh, should be uh, subject to public scrutiny, and that's why in 1995 uh, we created a bipartisan national nonprofit focused on academic freedom, excellence, and accountability, and basically designed to empower alumni and trustees on behalf of uh, strong curricula, historical literacy, the elimination of uh, rampant political correctness that we've been talking about tonight, mm -hmm. uh, focusing on grade inflation, and really trying to empower trustees, again, as you say, to understand that they are the fiduciaries of the academic and financial well-being of their institutions, that admittedly there are special protocols that apply to the academy, shared governance, academic freedom, but that does not mean that trustees should leave uh, that entirely to those inside, that they have a right to be asking questions about what their graduates need to know. A perfect case in point uh, is a particular woman who's on the board, in fact, of FIRE, Candice DeRussi. Uh, can you fill in, in, Alan, a little bit on her uh, her undertakings for yes. the... And I'd be happy to, too. You both know her, of course. Sure. Yes. Uh, well, since since uh, the discussion here is of, of trustees and regents, Anne, why don't you take it? Well, absolutely. And I think uh, this will be an, an example of what informed and thoughtful trustees can do. Candace has been on the State University of New York Board of Trustees for uh, many uh, a good year and, in fact, headed up their academic affairs committee at one point. Uh, in that case, the trustees were very concerned that the graduates of the State University of New York system, the largest public system in the world, that they be able to be informed citizens and effective workers. And so, among other things, they undertook a curricular review working with the administrators and the faculty. And as a consequence of their questions and as a consequence of their desire to make certain that they were producing informed graduates, uh, SUNY adopted a comprehensive general education review and revision that now means that SUNY graduates are exposed to Western civilization. It means they're exposed to American history. And we think that's a perfect example of how an engaged and thoughtful board can make real differences in the education of our students. And that was certainly not the only uh, uh, wonderful reform that they undertook. That board also was very much concerned with quality teachers. Uh, in many, many places we have examples where teacher education schools are simply not doing the job of producing uh, well and instructed teachers. The SUNY board took a look at that. They were concerned about assessments. This has become one of the new buzzwords in higher education. What value adds do our students receive? And again, the SUNY board was one of the very first to take a look at that. So I think they're a very good example of trustees who have rejected the old go-along, get-along mantra on behalf of academic standards and excellence. A question to all three of you before we pause for some commercials and then on to the phones. Uh, are your separate organizations really reversing the tide, or are we still overwhelmed by this plague of political correctness and the plague of uh, curricular degeneration, uh, all of which involved, are involved in the lowering of higher education. Are you uh, at all confident, Alan, that 
these matters can be reversed? Well, um, one, you, you fight this fight without assurance of victory because it's a fight that simply has to be fought. Um, two, there is no doubt in my mind but that all of these groups have given administrators another shoulder to look over. Um, but this is a self-selecting group with political litmus tests. Um, it uh, tenures those whom it favors, um, and it weeds out those whom it does not. I have absolutely no doubt but that I could never be hired in the current political climate um, as I was in the late 60s, which people think of as more politicized. Um, but the, the, the public is aware. The problem is it is a state-subsidized monopoly of higher education in which people have taken things that ought to be matters of public trust and turned them into closed shop political fiefdoms that needs to be exposed and it needs to be fought against. And if we don't win, um, let's go down trying. Excellently said. Let's get a response on that same question. Are we facing an inevitable uh, and tidal force which will drown us all, or can this be reversed? Well, uh, to begin with, uh, when it comes to swimming against the tide, uh, that's better than swimming with it if it takes you out into the middle of the ocean. So essentially, I agree with everything Alan said. We have no choice but to fight. Um, uh, have we won? No. Are we improving things? Yes. Uh, obviously, we've had some effect because uh, there's been reaction to us. Uh, have we won? No, but we have to keep trying. And Neil? Well, i got to continue this metaphor. I mean, I think we're trying to part the seas here, and I think we're <laughs> seeing a lot of success. Now, admittedly, uh, uh, we've got somewhere to, to go, but let's take a look at Harvard, for instance. We've already been talking about them. Larry Summers was very critical of the curricular review that had been taking place, and in large part because of his criticism, Harvard decided to do it over again. And after many fits and stops, they have come out with a new curricular proposal that, among other things, requires American history of its graduates. This is an immense change, and I think it does underscore that the culture is changing in a good way, that there is uh, a real realization that we are doing a disservice to our students when even Harvard students today cannot find an American history survey in the catalog. So I think that's a perfect example of some real positive developments. Smith, which got an F in ACTA's hollow core, has decided that it's going to implement a mathematical reasoning requirement. University of Texas is looking at its core curriculum. SUNY, as I indicated, it has already undertaken a very comprehensive general education review. We're seeing many good things happening in Colorado. Core curriculum review, grade inflation review. There, after the horrible experience of Ward Churchill and his gross fabrications, uh, the provost indicated that it was imperative that the disciplines review their hiring and promotion policies. These are all very, very positive developments. Alan, we're about to pause for some commercials. If I understand correctly, you've got to leave us now. Is that true? Uh, I do. Can I add one quick word to what Ann said? Yes, please. Which is, I think it's wonderful if one broadens the curriculum um, but it is a hollow victory if universities do not begin 
to hire pluralistically. Absolutely. So that students hear a diversity of perspectives and not a dreary political orthodoxy on all matters of history and culture. Excellently said, and a crucial point, I think. That's right. Alan, thank you very much for joining us tonight. Oh, my privilege. Look Wonderful forward to, to seeing you. you again soon. Goodbye. Bye. See ya. Good night for now. <laughs> and we are uh, going to pause in just a moment for some commercials, then on to the phones. And we return to Ann Neal, president of the American Council of Trustees and Alumni, and John Winger, vice president of the Illinois chapter of the National Association of Scholars. And we will go almost instantly to the phones. You are on the air. Good evening. Uh, good evening, Mr. Yes, Rosenberg. Uh, my name is Joel Gibbons. Uh, just a comment. This is not a new problem. I'm fascinated by the, the people you have on and, and really endorse what they're doing. Uh, I think it was Socrates who said, when you start charging for education, there goes the education. So it's, uh, it's a problem that's been around quite a while. Explain the thought of Socrates. I don't quite follow it. Well, what he's saying is that when, when education becomes a product, uh -huh. a commodity, as it were, it's no longer education. Where does he say that? In which of the dialogues? Oh, I, I don't know. My memory's not that good. Sounds like the, the, the Mino, I think. Perhaps. I think it, you raise a, an interesting point, and the fact that trustees, one of their obligations, I think, is to determine what their graduates need to know. And the Commission on the Future of Higher Education has had some meetings in recent months and came out with a report basically saying that higher ed was complacent and in need of reform. And one of the issues, I think, that was addressed there was this consumer issue versus the needs of the students. And again, I think uh, in too many ways, higher ed has lost its way in terms of what it is we need to produce, namely informed citizens, and by regaining a focus on what our graduates need to know, we can uh, get away from just uh, satisfying the customer and get back to uh, finding out what's necessary for a quality education. Sir, we thank you for the call. Uh, I want to read you an email that's come in, um, and, uh, but I want to, just before I read it, I want to say something quite simple about my own experience. I've been a college teacher for many, many years uh, and have taught. I began at Yale after I got my doctorate, then went to Ohio State for two years of, uh, of, uh, of Purda, and then to Dartmouth, and then to the University of Chicago for a long, long run. Um, and I observed over those years, on sort of five-year intervals, always a just noticeable difference, a psychologist term, a JND, a further decline in the sheer literacy of my students, the writing that they did. I always wanted to require students to write a fair amount of you know, essays and responses to um, material I had them read. Uh, and uh, the ability to construct an English sentence seemed to disappear over those years. Certainly the ability to organize a paragraph and then another paragraph and to do it in a cogent uh, way which just used the English language effectively to convey ordered thought became not uh, utterly unavailable, but more and more rare. Out of 20 students, it used to be that 18 could do it, then it was 15 could do it, then finally it was down to 2 or 3 out of 20 who could do it. That's by background. I read you now an email from one of our listeners um, who uh, says, as a lowly instructor of first-year composition, I am aggrieved that some type of English grammar and usage course is not a graduation requirement. How can a young woman be considered educated if she does not know what to do with her apostrophes? How can a young man be considered, quote, degreed 
if he persists in dangling his modifier before his reading audience. Yet I am discouraged from teaching grammar in my composition classes. That's interesting. Her deans or her chairman tells her she should not be teaching grammar. Um, perhaps my chairs and directors assume that if they didn't learn it in seventh grade, it's not our job to catch them up. That may be why. It may be that they say, well, all ways of speaking and writing are equally acceptable. And after all, black English is legitimate English also. And we are not here to judge. We're here to be truly diverse and appreciative of diversity. That's my in interpolation in the middle of her commentary. But here's her last line. Perhaps that's not the same rationale for not teaching them the years of the Civil War? Question mark. Um, there's a young uh, college teacher caught in the middle of this whole process of decline and abandonment of standards. It gets back again to the uh, distribution requirements syndrome which we have in colleges across the country. We no longer really have that kind of structured curriculum which would mandate exposure to certain areas such as composition. That's why ACTA undertook the study of the hollow core to see what colleges and universities were requiring. And we found the same thing that this uh, professor found, that, right. that composition is typically not required. For instance, here, Northwestern, you in our study uh, received an F. The only requirement it had of all of its graduates was a language requirement. There was no composition, no econ, no science, uh, no American history or government. And so we agree that it's very troubling that we have these vast gaps in what our students are learning. I think it also raises another interesting issue, and this is about uh, teacher preparation as well. Uh, because uh, one thing we've looked at is uh, the ed schools and what they are doing. And so often they are graduating teachers who do not have degrees in the subjects that they teach. Is it any wonder These then? These are the teachers going into the Teachers high going schools. into K-12 yeah. who then produce what goes into college. The, the teachers themselves are not adequately prepared. They often do not have degrees in the subjects that they uh, are teaching. And it gets back again to what we've been talking about earlier this evening about some of the very deleterious uh, aspects of political correctness. NCATE is the largest accreditor of teacher education programs, and until very, very recently, one of the uh, requirements that many of its uh, accredited schools had was a disposition towards social justice. And I think it's interesting to look at the case at Brooklyn College where some students protested their professor who was claiming that good grammar was the language of oppressors. Mm. And these students who agreed with the teacher who wrote in wanted to understand good grammar and know how to articulate good grammar and in fact were being told that this was inappropriate, that they did not have the appropriate dispositions for teaching. And at a time when we have a shortage of good teachers, isn't it tragic that we're finding federal accreditors imposing political litmus tests? In fact, the dispositions movement is worth some commentary. Uh, I like to make comment here. I think this woman should teach grammar and, t and uh, tell her deans to drop dead. Uh, or simply ignore them and and do what she has to do. But she's probably an adjunct working on a year-to-year -year basis, and they'll fire oh, her. That's true. I hadn't even thought of that. That is true. It's a terrible problem, and it's a terrible problem in the city colleges of Chicago. There, there. When I started, there weren't any adjuncts, and now no. more than 50% of all the teachers are adjuncts. It's dreadful. These people uh, get paid very little, and and uh, they exist at the whim 
of everyone. And, and of course, one of the problems is that they can't stand up uh, when administrators make stupid decisions. No. We are due for uh, a quick stop for an update on the news. We are talking about what's gone wrong in American universities, though obviously one must concede that some things have gone right and some things are still rather workable. I've long been persuaded that when it comes to the science departments, things are in very good shape. When it comes to the professional schools, they're essentially in good shape. When it comes to undergraduate education in the arts and uh, in arts and letters, so to speak, things are not what they ought to be. Indeed, they are much diminished and much misused. And I think my two guests agree with me. Ann Neal, president of the American Council of Trustees and Alumni, and John Wenger, vice president of the Illinois chapter of the National Association of Scholars. And with that, we go to the next caller. Hello, you're on the air. Hi, um, my name is Lee Williams, and I'm a pharmacist, and I work with students from pharmacy schools. And I have observed that there's a change over the years. I have been a pharmacist for 30 years. But in addition, I have uh, a Bachelor of Sciences degree, and I'm amazed at people who are telling me that they have a Bachelor of Sciences degree in English. Now, you were talking about the overinflation of grades. This is like, to me, it's an overinflation of the degree itself. Well, usually if you have a degree in English, you don't, you're not a Bachelor of Science, you're a Bachelor of Arts. You're I understand that. BA. And uh, that, that's why I have assumed that it's been people who are trying to, you know, they, they feel that a Bachelor of Sciences has a little more prestige or something than a Bachelor of Arts. But I have seen people who have been conferred with a Bachelor of Sciences degree for a major in business or a major in, you know, uh, a non-science uh, curriculum. Did they and have just, the hours in science? Yes. No, they do not. Oh. Well, apart from the name of the degree, how educated are they? Well, they have, in my mind, a Bachelor of Arts in business. Yeah. And, you know, if we're calling something a Bachelor of Sciences or a Bachelor of Arts, it should have some meaning. And schools that are conferring a Bachelor of Sciences on a major in business, once yeah. again, are inflating, you know, that. Well, speaking of inflation, one thing that does bring to mind, and I see it as an even more pernicious problem, is grade inflation, which is endemic, isn't it? Absolutely. The American Council of Trustees and Alumni did a report called Degraded Currency, the Problem of Grade Inflation. And it really eats at the very integrity of the academic enterprise. When students work hard, uh, they may get an A. When students don't work hard, they often will get an A. And so they come away really having no clue as to whether or not they're doing a good job, how they rate uh, versus other students. And we are seeing some improvement in this area. Princeton was the very first to uh, take a lead in this area. They've actually put a percentage on the number of A's that they award. Dartmouth has done something very interesting where they actually have the the specific grade that the student receives, but also on the transcript, it provides the median grade in the class. So it is possible for the employer to understand how many people were getting an A and how many people were getting a B. So we're seeing some progress there. How do you like the the 
tactic that Harvey Mansfield adopted up at Harvard. I love it. He he had two grades. He had the ironic grade, which I believe was the one that the, he thought they should get, and the grade that they were awarded based on what he believed other professors were giving. And he ultimately, as I understand it, has abandoned that now, and because he was fearful that he was losing out no. on students. But uh, I discussed it with him. He was on the program just a while ago. And of course, he gave A's to most of the students because that's what is sort of required <laughs> or accepted at Harvard. But then he gave them the private grade, telling them what they had really achieved, which was often to C or a D. That's right. You know, I have a somewhat dissenting view on this. Uh, when you take a look at the people who go to Harvard, many of whom have, have SATs in the high 700s, it's not really surprising that they all get A's. Uh, when I taught... Mm. I would have absolute standards, and I told my class that nothing would make me happier than to give them all A's. It didn't happen. Generally, two-thirds of them wouldn't get through the course, but that's because they didn't meet my standards, which I thought were pretty reasonable. They weren't that hard. Uh, but had they, had they all gotten 90%, they would have all gotten A's. I don't see anything wrong with that, and I think the idea of putting in the median uh, is, is somewhat unfair. It depends on the students and how good they are. The fact is that something else has happened over the years, and it partly accounts for great inflation. One account is that you give them high grades because they're now paying customers and you need to keep them there mm -hmm. and not disaffect them or disaffect their parents. But yet another is the over-psychologization of the faculty who've been taken in by uh, psychological concern with the self-esteem of the student. And if you give them a C, it might really hurt him, and it might deflect him, and it might depress him, and it might uh, wreck his career. Therefore, you have to keep him enthused or at least optimistic about his own true qualities and his own true well, achievement potential by giving him A's. Uh, don't, hurt, don't hurt him. First, do no harm. Actually, that standard is totally misused and mis misapplied when it comes to grading well, students. You're right, but actually it started during the Vietnam War when teachers oh, yes. were afraid not of their self-esteem, but well of their going that. to Vietnam. I, I was in that situation, I, I yeah. remember. Don't give a kid a C because that might get him drafted, yes. And yeah. I think we've also had the use of student evaluations. So students now are grading their professors, uh -huh. and the professors who tend to give the highest grades also tend to get the best student evaluations. The student evaluations are then used to give pay increases, and so you have this vicious cycle uh, yes. that, again, contributes to yeah. grade inflation. You know, if I could get back to the questioner's question, uh, I uh, I would say that if somebody has 60 hours or whatever it is in math and science and they happen to be an English major, then why not give them a Bachelor of Science in English? But if it's what she's saying, uh, that uh, they've simply changed it, I think that's disgraceful. Let us go back to the phones quickly. 591-7200. Good evening. Yes, uh, good evening, uh, Dr. Uh, Rosenberg and guests. A comment that I have in retrospect I think the ultimate undergraduate format there's a, is um, um, a college in California, St. Thomas Aquinas. What I love about their format, they have no majors. Everyone gets a bachelor's degree in liberal arts. You have to start as a first semester freshman. There's no transferring in. Uh, everything's done in Socratic dialogue. There are, are no textbooks. Only primary sources are used. And it's uh, the great books curriculum. And that, that seems like just, just the ultimate of what a, an undergraduate education yeah. could, should be. I, I'd like your comment on that, and also uh, I'd also like you to comment, those of us that are beyond college years, what can we do to go back and make up for the faults in our, in our formal education? 
Do you feel that there's much fault in your own history? I do. I do. I, I, like I said, lo looking back, that's what I would have wanted. Well, you, the great books are there for you to read. Well, absolutely. You can always you can always retire and go to St. Thomas uh, uh, to to go to the school. It sounds like fun. Or, jo or join the Great Books group. Just a few weeks ago, we did a program on the Great Books with the president of Shimer College, oh, yes. which which yes. has a Great Books based That's curriculum, amazing. and with uh, one of the people from the Great Books Foundation. Uh, and uh, they are very busy running Great Books discussion groups all over the country. Yes, uh, and I'd like to also refer to a booklet that the American Council of Trustees and Alumni has published, Becoming an Educated Person. Uh, while we like to criticize things that can be improved in higher education, we also like to showcase things that are good in higher education. And this booklet uh, looks at a number of schools across the country that do have core curricula. St. Thomas Aquinas is one that is mentioned, Boston University, Brooklyn College, to name a few. So uh, here are some examples of places that do have a very thoughtful, structured curriculum. Sir, we thank you for the thank call. Thank you very much. We must pause for a last round of commercials, then directly back to the phones and to the email. And right after, these words. And quickly back to the phones. And you are on the air. Good evening. Good evening. Uh, I'm a professor of English at DePaul University, and uh, this question is for Dr. Neal. Uh, decisions about what should or should not uh, become part of the required cur curriculum are thoroughly political questions. So the decision to make Shakespeare a required part of the curriculum, as Dr. Neal feels is important, is also a political act. Uh, aesthetic objects such as, such as novels and plays are evaluated for their value not through some objective lens, but through a social political lens. So I feel it's more important for my students to read Maxine Hong Kingston, Salman Rushdie, and Richard Wright than it is for them to read Shakespeare. So am I being any more political than Dr. Neal is and feeling strongly about this? Thank you. Well, I think you and I disagree on the fundamental premise here. I don't believe these are political decisions at all. I think these are decisions that are based on uh, evaluation of the best that has been done and said. And I think one of the problems that we're seeing is there is an unwillingness to make a hierarchy of choices. Some things are better than others. And I think now... You stand just, with Matthew Arnold. I, I do stand with Matthew Arnold. I think it's very interesting. And the uh, city of Washington is now engaged in a six-month celebration of Shakespeare where uh, the major theaters, the Kennedy Center, all are celebrating this great man and the transcendent works of literature that he has produced. At the same time, we're looking at our colleges and universities, and English majors aren't even being uh, instructed in Shakespeare. And I think that is really a very sorry statement about the unwillingness to step up to the plate and to decide what is important for our, our citizens and graduates to know. That isn't to say that there aren't other good and important things, whether it's uh, the, the authors that you refer to. Uh, certainly, that may be also very important for students. But I do think it's incumbent on faculty members who have read the material and who have, uh, are able to judge lasting value uh, of these materials to pick the best that has been done and said to be introduced to these students in a very limited time frame that they have in colleges and universities and to uh, it, it enable them to become lifetime learners so that they can go on and read what they have not otherwise been introduced to. So would I, as someone who has gone to graduate school and has a PhD and is well published uh, in my field, uh, if I make the decision that I don't feel Shakespeare is important, should I then be deemed incompetent by my colleagues in my university? 
again, I think it's important. You do have tenure, don't you? I think, well, and I think this gets back again to the important role of trustees, because I think uh, one of the real aspects of American uh, universities is lay governance and the fact that we rely on lay trustees to connect the university to the greater society. And while I agree that academics are responsible for the development of the syllabi and what is actually taught in the classroom, I do think it's important for trustees to determine what it is they believe graduates sh should know, whether the DePaul graduates or what any institution you want to uh, you want to name. Should they be exposed to surveys of American history? Uh, should they be exposed to Western civilization? I think these are very legitimate questions, broad framework questions for trustees to decide. And again, I think looking at our English departments where we have found that uh, essentially uh, anything goes, I think we're doing our students a disservice when we don't bring our own training and value assessments to the, um, to the curriculum. Sir, well, thank you for the call. Time is very short. We do want to work in a few more quick calls. Here is the next. Hello, you're on the air. Uh, good evening. Uh, I was an adjunct professor at uh, St. Xavier's University on the south side of Chicago. I submitted uh, grades, and the director of the program called me up and asked me if I would consent to his, his raising the grades. I told him, well... You, you for what reason did he give you for doing that? Well... Uh, they were too low. I submitted, <laughs> I submitted one B, several C's, and two D's, and uh, that was not acceptable. I told them why I thought they were justified. What was the course, sir? Uh, I was teaching a certificate of financial planning course. I was teaching a course in insurance. Uh huh. And uh, uh, so anyway, I, I concluded the conversation by saying, "Well, I recognize that you're the uh, the boss, and I." I I really don't think that I have uh, very much control of the matter, and if you, you, you are of the opinion to uh, raise these grades, I guess, I guess that's the way it's going to be. My question is, what if I would have told him absolutely not? What, 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 what influence or what persuasive force would my opinion have had? I would try it next time, see. <laughs> well, of course, I have not been retained. <laughs> well, not, not necessarily. I mean, there are some administrators who really want to get high grades and try to bully people into it, but they won't go so far as to order them to do it because if the person raises objections, they're going to look bad. And so what they're trying to do is to get you to change the grade. Now, legally speaking, I think the college owns the grades, not the faculty member. So he probably could have done it without even consulting you. The fact that he did consult you means that he wanted your, uh, your agreement. Uh, now, of course, it is true you'd be risking your job. But on the other hand, quite honestly, if that's what it takes to keep that job, I'd get another one. Well, I was an adjunct, and so it didn't really make any difference to me in terms of uh, financial support and my, my standard of living. But... Um, I, I um, basically, my conclusion was is that he had a conflict of interest. He was trying to develop a secondary stream of income for his institution, and uh, that, that was the CFP program. And um, he, he, of course, was going to find some people not completing his CFP program. Well, I wouldn't want my insurance advisor to be somebody who got his training in a course where you were, where the grades were forced upward. 
uh, well, away I do, from I the... appreciate your, your courtesy, and I know your time is short. Thank you, sir. We thank you, sir, for the call. Uh, time is very short. Um, but uh, here's one quick email which is relevant uh, in many ways. Let me just read it. Please send me the website uh, URL for tonight's phone guest, Alan. That's Alan Coors. I tried fire.org and fire.com, but both failed. Yes, they did, sir. The proper one is the fire, T-H-E-F-I-R-E, one word, dot org, and that will get you to the website for FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. And let's talk about the other websites, and what is yours? Ours is www.goacta.org, G-O-A-C-T-A. I tried that. First, I just entered ACTA today and found something else. <laughs> and then I checked it out on Google, and it is GoActa. So please do go to our website, www.goactor.org, and you'll be able to access our various reports, press releases, et cetera. And for um, the National Association it, of I Scholars? It's nas.org. As simple uh, as that. Yes, and, and if you forget it, just go to the National Association of Scholars, put it in Google, you'll get it right away. That's always the way to find a website if you don't have it. Um, I thank you most sincerely, both of you, for joining us tonight. Um, and Neil is the president of the American Council of Trustees and Alumni and the manager as well of their Fund for Academic Renewal. John Wenger is the vice president of the Illinois chapter of the National Association of Scholars, former professor of mathematics at Harold Washington College.